Good morning and Merry Christmas. For those who are visiting with us, we have been looking at several different things about that we think of at Christmas time. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Two weeks ago, we talked about the angels. Last week, we talked about the manger. Uh, today, we want to talk about the wise men. Who were these wise men? And I begin by saying a thanks to Alan Tilly. Some of you uh, remember Alan Tilly. He was an elder here for a number of years. Uh, I think two years ago, he sent me some notes about wise men. He said, you ought to share this sometime. And uh, so I thank him for that. I think he got his notes from John MacArthur, although in my research, I found a lot of people saying the same things, and I'm just glad to share some of that with you this morning. But I asked the question again, who were the wise men? What do we know about them? How many were they? We think three. We say they're three. But were there three? We refer to them sometimes as kings. But were they kings? And why did they come to Bethlehem? I think a lot of what we think of the wise men comes from Christmas cards um, or Christmas carols, more so than the Bible or theologians, or even history. If you've ever done uh, word studies, you're familiar with the name Martin Vincent. He's written several word studies about uh, words that appear in the Bible. Uh, He said in regard to this, quote, many absurd traditions and guesses respecting these visitors to our Lord's cradle have found their way into popular belief and into Christian art. They were said to be kings and three in number. They are said to be representatives of the three families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and therefore one of them is pictured as the Ethiopian. Doesn't that sound familiar? Some of you have heard that before, <clears throat> but is it true? And according to one author, three skulls were found, and the one who found them in the 12th century, Bishop Renald of Cologne, knew immediately they were the skulls of the wise men because their eyes were still in their sockets and they were fixed toward Bethlehem. <clears throat> Yeah, you can laugh out loud. <clears throat> but folks, these skulls are in, a, look at the screen, a, uh, uh, this special edifice at a, in a cathedral in Germany. What do we really know about these guys? Well, according to Matthew's gospel, very, very little. Look at Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Wise men from the Easts. That's all Matthew tells us about them. We don't know their names. We don't know anything beyond just that one sentence. But we do have some fascinating history that kind of fills in the blanks and tells us a little bit of the backstory. Some of it from the Bible, like the Old Testament book of Daniel, uh, where magi or wise men appear in several texts. Also, some writings in history, like uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian, and others. So we're going to spend a lot of time in history in our lesson today. So this is going to be more teaching than preaching. But bear with me. There's not an outline. You may have noticed that. We are going to have a a PowerPoint to share several verses. You may want to take notes. um, But I just want you to listen and just kind of understand and maybe appreciate a little bit of the backstory of why this is a part of the Bible. Why did Matthew tell us about these men coming to visit our Lord? Well, it's believed that wise men were members of an eastern priestly tribe, a group that were associated with the Medes. If 
probably heard of Medes before, M-E-D-E-S, the Medes, ancient group of people. Now, quick reminder of world history, four major world empires. First, the Babylonian Empire, that's east of Israel, kind of at the base of the Tigris and Euphrates River. You've heard of the Babylonian Empire. The second empire Daniel talked about was the Medo-Persian Empire, kind of a combination, a conglomeration of the Medes and the Persians together. Medes were very large people, very powerful people. The third great world empire was Greece. When the Medo-Persian Empire was conquered by Alexander the Great, you might say the world became Greek. But then came the Roman Empire, that fourth great empire. And it's also good to remember that these empires kind of overlapped a little bit. So that's kind of good to keep in mind as well. Well, historians trace the origins of the Medes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Remember when God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans? Remember that word, Chaldeans, because we're going to read it again. We know from the book of Daniel these people appear in the Babylonian Empire. We know they were part of the Roman Empire. We know they were there when Christ was born. So these people were very ancient people, long-lived people, and these are where the wise men came from. And by the way, the word wise men, I've got the ESV version on the screen. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Look at this next slide. Because the New American Standard, the King James Version, and the New International Version use the term magi. Now, the Greek word there, not to bore you with this, is magos or or magioi or magi, depending on the grammar. Not really a translatable word. I think magi, though, is really the best translation of this word at this time. But again, who were the Magi then? Well, the Magi, again, were this priestly tribe of people from the Medes. So the Medes was a huge group of people throughout the history of the world, and the Magi were one tribe of them. They were skilled in astronomy. They were skilled in astrology. Uh, They were uh, sort of a cultist in a way. Uh, They had some sort of divination processes that they did. Uh, They were involved in sorcery. We assume that just because of the history there. That may explain, though, how the word magi also came to be changed into magic or magician, although that's not the origin of the word. But that's what we kind of think of. Historical sources document the fact that the Magi were this pagan, this pagan priestly tribe of Medes. Very interested, again, in astronomy and astrology. Now, we know one's a science, one is superstition. But in that day, they were kind of uh, one and the same, and, and they didn't see those differently. Now, what's interesting about this is the way their position was throughout time, but especially all the way back to the Babylonian Empire. They were very heavily influenced, the Medes, these magi by the Jews. If you remember your Old Testament history, Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king that took Judah, the southern king, into captivity. So in doing that, all the Jews were brought into Babylon. And so then the magi who were there would have known about this. By that time, the magi had ascended into a high place in the Babylonian Empire. And because of their, again, amazing intuition, their wisdom, their knowledge, their astrology, their occultic ability, all the things, whatever you want to call it, they had risen to a place of prominence in the Babylonian Empire. And they came in contact with a Jew named Daniel. Do you remember that from your Old Testament history? 
Daniel was elevated in the Babylonian Empire, and consequently, they would have been made familiar with how the Jews were brought in to their part of the world and even told about this Jewish prophecy of the coming Messiah. Now, let's go back in history a little bit and better understand what happens in Matthew 2. When we know our history, then Matthew 2, kind of the lights kind of come on a little bit. According to the ancient historian Herodotus, uh, the Magi, again, were this tribe of people within the larger group of Medes. That uh, was a, a hereditary tribe. Think of like the Levites uh, of, the, of the Jewish people. Uh, they were the ones who took care of all the ceremonies, the religious ceremonies in the temple. Or the Magi were the pagan uh, tribe of people that took care of all the pagan uh, ceremonies as well. So when you read or hear the word Magi, think of that. Think of like priests, a priestly tribe of people. Now, as I said earlier, some historians think this goes all the way back to Ur of the Chaldeans and Abraham's time in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, some think they may have just surfaced in the Babylonian Empire, but either way, we don't really know for sure. But here's what we do know, is that during the Babylonian world empire, they were significant. During the Medo-Persian Empire, the Magi were significant. During the Greek Empire, the Magi were significant. And during the Roman Empire the Magi were significant. In all of these empires, the Magi continued to have this place of tremendous prominence, not just in the East, but also among royalty. The majority of historians see these people in this function as as these priests, and they also acknowledge their occultic powers and and how they would lean on those. They would talk about their astrology, their astronomy, and their, their, their studying the stars and all that goes with that. But the Magi became advisors. The Magi rose to be uh, in places of prominence by royalty. And that's where we get the name wise men. So if you think of Magi and wise men, in some circles they became synonymous. And so which one's the right term? Well, in some ways they're both a correct term. History also tells us a little bit about the religious activities of the Magi. Again, remember, they're they're priestly people. Here's what they believed. Here's how they practiced. They believed uh, and worshiped and reverenced fire. In fact, if you look up the word magician, it means fire worshiper. That's the origin of the word magician. So they had an altar that had this perpetual flame, and they believed that it was kindled by the one God above. And that's the other thing to know about these people. They were monotheistic. So they had that in in the same way with the Jews. Uh, They had not only that one flame of that one altar for the fire, but they also had another uh, altar for blood sacrifices. So you see another similarity with the Jews. I share all this because I want you to see how the Magi were in a lot of their practices and beliefs similar to the Levites, to the Jews. Now, it was kind of uh, corrupted in a way, and even way back then, Satan had a way of corrupting true uh, worship, but they're not so different than the Levites. You see a lot of parallels here. That one author said the Magi carried around small bundles of divining rods in their garments and made the parallel to what the high priest would, would carry, the Urim and the Thummim. You remember that in the Old Testament as well? They also believed that certain kinds of animals were unclean. They also had uh, special rules about uh, touching or actually not touching uh, dead bodies. Sound familiar? I mean, several similarities to the Jewish people. 
Now, this priestly group of Medes served as the official advisors of the king. So they're tremendously powerful, influential. And these kings elevated the Magi. And the Bible first shows us this with Nebuchadnezzar. But again, great rulers like Cyrus and others, they also use magi in these prominent positions. Now, let's look at the book of Daniel. And I think, again, as we do this, when we get to Matthew 2, we'll appreciate it even more. Daniel chapter 2 gives a glimpse into the court of Nebuchadnezzar. What's going on there? The Jews are in captivity in Babylon. Uh, Daniel is one of the wise men. The king has a dream, and no one can interpret the dream. You remember that part of the story? Look at Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Now, some suggest these words, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, were like different ways of saying the same thing. We won't take the time, but you might remember at one point the king addresses the Chaldeans and blames them for not being able to interpret his dream and then commands all of the wise men to be killed. So they're kind of all lumped together. So the words seem to be used interchangeably at times. Well, these magi were known to interpret dreams, though, but none of them could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So keep reading in Daniel, and again, you're going to see their name pop up again and again. Daniel chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. The king here is speaking. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretations. At last, Daniel came in before me, and now speaking to Daniel in verse 9, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So I want you to see that these people are mentioned repeatedly. Next chapter, chapter 5, verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods, talking about Daniel here, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. We remember the story. Daniel was so adept at telling the dreams of the king made Daniel... The text says they're chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Now, that put Daniel in a very unique, special position. And he was able to influence so many people. Think about what we know of Daniel. A man of incredible faith who would stand up for what he believed in. He would not corrupt true worship. He was a man of his word. He was a man of God. We know Daniel that way. So there's no question in my mind that if Daniel was chief of the magicians, he's talking about God. He's teaching about God. He's even introducing them to his copy of the Old Testament. He's wanting them to know about the one true God. Additionally, we need to know from history When the final uh, decree of Cyrus came that the Jews were able to go back to their homeland, you remember the Bible tells us this, a lot of them didn't go back. In fact, the majority of them stayed there. They'd intermingled, they'd intermarried, they kind of were settled, and they stayed right there. And certainly we'd have to conclude that Daniel had a profound impact on dispensing all that he knew, all that he believed about the one true God. Now, you also remember about Daniel, everything didn't always go well. Remember the time when he had some, some uh, uh, 
cohorts who didn't like him, found himself in the lion's den. But what we need to remember, that wasn't coming from the magi. They're the wise men. They're the advisor. They're the counselor. They're the royalty. This enemies of Daniel didn't come from them. It was the satraps, you remember? Because the new king came and made regional governors. That's where the jealousy came from, not from the magi. We don't read anything ill will from the magi toward Daniel when he became the chief of all of them. So Daniel not only talked about his one true God, some of them accepted it as true. The Bible even tells us that the king believed, at least to some degree, in Daniel's God. Look at Daniel 6, verse 16. The king declared to Daniel, remember this, right before being thrown into the fire, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. The king saying that, acknowledging he's heard Daniel talk about his king. And he's believing that Daniel's God is going to deliver him. Look at Daniel 6, verse 25. This is the king speaking. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. The king was so convinced of the power of God through the life and the teaching the example of Daniel. So Daniel obviously made an impact on the king. And of course, we assume through the rest of the Magi. Could it be that then these Magi continued to study and believe Daniel's teaching about all the Old Testament, about this Messiah who was to come? Did they put together Daniel's teaching with Balaam's prophecy and numbers? Remember, they were really into stars. That was kind of their thing. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. I can't help but believe, but that some of these magi continued to believe through the years. And it was those who still believed who showed up at the birth of Christ. They were true seekers of the one true God. Now, a little more history that I think will shed some light on Matthew's account. These magi were so powerful that historians tell us that no Persian king was selected without their input. In fact, they had to meet two criteria. One, they had to master the scientific and the religious discipline of the Magi. And number two, they had to be approved of and crowned by the Magi. Now, that's influence. That's power. Do you know what this wisdom is called there, their master of their scientific and religious discipline? The law of the Medes and the Persians. Remember reading that in Scripture? It's referenced a couple of times, the law of the Medes and the Persians. The Bible talks about in Esther. The Bible talks about that in the book of Daniel a couple of times. The law of the Medes and the Persians was their code of scientific and religious discipline. That wisdom was so influential. In fact, do you remember when Stephen was giving his defense, talking about the one true God? In Acts chapter 7, 22, Stephen gave a quick history lesson, and he said, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. If you were going to become royalty, you had to learn this, especially if you were a king from the east. 
They were raised that way. So besides controlling this kingly office, historians tell us that the Magi oversaw the judicial appointments as well. So the more you read and discover, it's kind of like, man, they just had an amazing insight and power and influence. Now, as I mentioned earlier, one of their special skills was interpreting dreams. And when they failed to do that, that's when Daniel was elevated because he was able to interpret the dreams. We saw that in Daniel 5.11. But 600 years before Jesus was born, God was setting the scene for what would happen and recorded in Matthew chapter 2. See, as bad as it was for the Jews to be exiled from their homeland, God used that horrible situation, a Hebrew prophet, to be placed in a place of prominence and influence to this group called the Magi, who already had enormous influence through the known world at the time, so that years later, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, some of those Magi would find their way to where that baby was and say, here's the king. That is planning history. See, the Magi were religious. I mentioned that, but here's something else to know. They weren't really strict about it. They had their beliefs, but they, they kind of adapted them as, as the years went on. They were monotheistic. I mentioned that. They had this hereditary priesthood. They believed in blood sacrifice. They also believed in supernatural revelation, and they believed in prophecy. All of these things they had in common with Judaism. So it was easy for them then when Daniel was teaching them to accept it. You can understand that very well. I believe when we come to Matthew chapter 2, there were some magi who continued to believe. Now, let's move to the time of Jesus. Century after century had passed. Jesus was born. Now, some of the magi didn't believe. We, We just know that. That's just life. Some of them were corrupt. We know that as well. The Bible tells us that. Uh, We know from the Bible, like the book of Acts uh, and and Luke even tells us about Simon the sorcerer, remember him, and Elimus. They were all just kind of thrown into the bus, as we know, because that's kind of who they were. They were sorcerers. And here's something else to know. It's good to understand that the Roman people saw those kinds of uh, tricksters as kind of a, a slam to the Magi's good name. I had no respect for them at all. Philo, the Romans, said, uh, they are vipers, they are scorpions, and other venomous creatures. But does that describe all the magi? Were some of them believers in the one true God and that the Messiah was coming? The Bible also tells us about some God-fearers. Remember reading about Cornelius? Or what about Lydia? She was a God-fearing Gentile. So no doubt there were some magi who, even in in high-ranking positions, continued to believe what Daniel had told years before about the one true God and the coming Messiah. Now, we also need to understand the political landscape going on in Matthew chapter 2. Politically speaking, Rome was scared of the east. Kind of a little bit of history here. Think of the Roman Empire as a map goes. I probably should have put it on the screen. But the Roman Empire, think of Europe and kind of the, uh, like the coast of the Mediterranean. That was kind of the Roman Empire, okay? Uh, and, and, and so that's where they were. And, and they were always at odds with those in the east. And, and, and history tells us about them fighting all the time. 
As big, as powerful as Rome were, they were afraid of what then was the Parthian Empire. They fought. They were violent enemies. They fought in uh, 55 B.C. They fought again in 40 B.C. And guess where they fought? Not in the east, not in the Roman Empire, but in between, in Syria, in Jordan, in Palestine. So the Jews were kind of right there in the middle of it. Do you remember how Herod reacted when he heard about the wise men, the Magi coming? Do you remember his response? Look at Matthew 2 again, verses 1 through 3. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod heard the Magi was coming, these Oriental Parthian kingmakers came to town. He was troubled. That word means agitated, disturbed, amazingly upset. Now, also, we, uh, we understand that Jerusalem was rattled. We'll talk about that more in, in a moment. Now, at the time of Christ, the, the Parthian, the, the um, Persian Empire, was the, had a governing body. Think of like our U.S. Senate. And they were made up of magi. They, these people were, their duty was to select the king. That's who they were. At the time of Christ, they had deposed their king. They were looking for another king. And don't you know, everybody knew this. You've got a major empire to the, to the east. They no longer have a king. They're looking, you would know about this. Herod would know about this. Herod had a title. Do you remember? It was King of the Jews. That was Herod's title. So when these kingmakers arrive in Jerusalem, Herod knows exactly what's going on. These are the ones who name the king. These are the ones who make the selection. So when they come to town saying, where is this king of the Jews? Herod starts panicking. Again, we need to know how this transpired. These were Persian dignitaries, political representatives, ambassadors, king makers coming to town. So when they traveled, they would make an entrance with all of their pomp because that's kind of who they were. That was their position. So they would travel uh, with all this huge uh, group that would come with them. They would wear conical hats that would point it at the top with straps around their chin. And don't picture them on, on camels, but on Persian steeds. And one historian says they didn't come along estimates in history. They came with the Persian cavalry. So when the Magi, the wise men, come to town, don't envision three holding their three gifts. But imagine this huge entourage that everybody notices you can't help but notice, including Herod. Now, these are powerful men, and to make it worse, Herod's army was out of the country on a mission. So when Matthew says Herod was troubled, you get the idea that was an understatement. So years earlier, the Parthians invented Palestine, and Herod himself, it was so bad, he had to flee to Rome 
just to save his own neck. And Herod is getting up in age. He's king of the Jews. Here come the kingmakers. He knows what's happening. Now, here's the reality. We don't know what these magi were thinking. We don't. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Some might even argue that they were looking at this politically. And to be fair, that was their role. They were kingmakers. That was kind of part of their job. But I think from Matthew's text, we can see to it that there was more to it than just that. Because when they got to their Bethlehem, Matthew 2 verse 11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped him. They saw more than the king. They saw the promised Messiah. I think what we have here are God-fearing, seeking Gentiles. By the way, notice how Matthew tells the story. Did you notice that when they arrived, they asked the people kind of openly, where is this one who was born king of the Jews? They're, They're not hiding You get the idea. They assume the people of Israel will be just as excited as they are, right? I mean, they're not Jewish people, but they've heard about these Jewish people, and these Jewish people know that the Messiah is coming. They've seen the star. They're coming to find this one who's born. They're thinking everybody's going to be excited, so they're openly asking about it. But do you remember what Matthew says about the rest of Jerusalem? They also were troubled. They didn't believe. You ever thought about that? The first people in the world to recognize the arrival of the king were Gentiles. Gentiles. Does that tell you about something, about history? Remember John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Okay, this is key. All the way through the gospel, If you've got your Bible marked and you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, you'll know that Matthew has a theme, Christ the King. From the very beginning to the end of Matthew's Gospel, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and the theme of Matthew's Gospel is Christ the King. And just to make sure nobody notices, Matthew is the one gospel who shares this detail that the most famous kingmakers in the whole world show up at the right time to say, where is the king? Jesus is king. It's all part of Matthew's strategy. Jesus is the king. The one thing that stood out to me as I was studying through this is how God planned history. God took the bad and made it good. He took rebellious hearts and used circumstances to advance his cause. He punished the wicked. He took care of the faithful. And through it all, his plan for redeeming man came to be at just the right time, at just the right place, to just the right couple. And he even used some Gentiles to come to believe in his only son. That hundreds of years later, They would travel this incredible distance and get to see with their own eyes the king of the Jews. And their response is they bow down and worship. But what's missing in all of this for all the planning, 
for all the orchestrating. You can see God's hand in all of this over years and years and years. You never read about God manipulating people to believe in him. Have you noticed that? You never read about God manipulating people to believe in him. He will use an evil king and a believing follower who's all alone in a foreign land to bring about his plan, but he never forces anyone to believe on him. I don't know what you believe about the Magi or the wise men, whatever you want to call them. And to be frank, I don't think God cares what you believe about these wise men. But what really does matter to God is that you have the same response to his son. That you, when you are aware that Jesus is the son of God, you acknowledge that he is the king. And your heartfelt response is as full of faith and you bow and you worship him. Why would Matthew tell us this little detail that we sometimes even wonder, well, why is that in the Bible? Because it's a big deal. God wants to know, what do you believe? And he will go to all kinds of ends and, 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 and measures to bring it to you and let you make a choice. Our invitation song is to give you that choice, to decide you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that when he was born, he was born King of the Jews, and he came to establish his kingdom. Think about that. Matthew talks about that throughout his gospel. When Jesus said, the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of heaven, it's king talk throughout. But what do you believe if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you're ready to confess your faith, we want to help you with that, to have your sins washed away in baptism so that you can become a child of God, so that His Spirit can live in you, so your name can be written above, your, your salvation can be sealed by the Holy Spirit. This invitation is for you. God went to amazing lengths to save your soul, and that's what He wants to do. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing?